lovers. Welcome to Get Real, a podcast hosted by the National Animal Interest Alliance, through which we'll have deeply honest conversations about animal research so we can learn together and make compassionate choices about our medical future together. Happy holidays, animal lovers, and welcome to episode 22 of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and our guest today is Dr. Veronica Maldonado. Dr. Maldonado is an ACLAM-boarded laboratory animal veterinarian with a PhD in immunology who's worked directly with animals involved in drug development for over 25 years. She's super passionate about caring for research animals, but she's equally passionate about finding ways to reduce the need for them in biomedical studies, especially dogs. And she has a plan. We'll discuss this and more on today's episode of Get Real. Thank you for joining us today on Get Real, Dr. Maldonado. I'm excited to have you to continue our discussion about dogs and research. Thank you for having me, Cindy. It's a pleasure to be here. On our last episode, we discussed the closure of the Invigo Research Dog Breeding Facility and the fact that that now leaves us with about 25% fewer dogs for research worldwide. Now, why does that matter? It matters because dogs are very powerful models for the study of human disease. Research with dogs has given us many, many treatments. Um, this is not a complete list, but Alzheimer's disease, anxiety, arthritis, asthma and COPD, birth defects, cataracts, cleft palate, epilepsy, heart disease, hemophilia, ALS, narcolepsy, retinal degeneration, and treatments for cancer all came from research with dogs. All of us love our dogs. We take them to the vet. Well, those treatments are available because of research with dogs. Dogs have treatments for anxiety, arthritis, cataracts, cleft palate, epilepsy, heart disease, hemophilia, influenza, Lyme disease, obesity, and let's not forget the things that dogs require specifically for their health, like the distemper and rabies vaccine, flea and tick repellents. All of this was made possible as a consequence of biomedical research with dogs. And it's not just drugs and drug development. We also benefit now from tremendous medical conveniences like cancer detection, genetic testing that was developed in dogs, insulin came from research with dogs, open heart surgery, organ transplants, pacemakers, hip replacements, and a whole host of other vaccines depended directly on biomedical research with dogs. So it's quite a big deal that we're in this position now where the fate of research with dogs is questionable. Now, coincidentally, many of you probably saw it, Anderson Cooper had a short segment on 60 Minutes about using information related to drugs tested in clinical trials with pet dogs that had cancer to inform clinical trials with people who have that same cancer. And so that was a fascinating segment. It generated a lot of discussion on social media. And this may be an opportunity for us to get information from pet dogs to inform the development of drugs for people and, of course, dogs in a way that's different from how we've done things up to now. So I brought you on today to talk about that specifically because you became very, very passionate about this over 10 years ago, right? You got on your soapbox 10 years ago and said, hey, we need to start doing this. This is, in fact, a better way to improve translatability from 
animal to people than what we're doing right now. In a previous conversation, I asked you directly, you know, well, so, you know, how do we do it now? And I'm going to recap what you told me. And if I leave something out, then, you know, just jump in and correct me. Okay. But my understanding is that before we can put a drug into clinical trials with people in our current practice, we have to do some research with animals to determine whether or not it's safe and also whether or not it's actually effective. Right. And so that starts with developing an animal model of the disease. And this is typically in mice. Yes. Correct. About 80 to 90% of the preclinical work is done in rodents. All right. So we create these sick mice that have the disease we're interested in. Then we give the mouse to the researcher who has developed multiple drug candidates to treat this disease. And the researcher tests all of these drugs on the sick mice to determine which treatment is the most effective. And then at that point, the drug is evaluated in healthy animals, a larger animal like a dog or a monkey in most cases, to determine the characteristics of the drug, right? So the pharmacology, how does the drug actually work? How does the body break it down? You know, what are the metabolites and so on and so forth, correct? Including the mechanism of action. In a different conversation that we had, you said to me, well, you know, this approach seems flawed from the start because you model the disease in sick mice. And then we kind of learn about the drug in healthy dogs and monkeys. And then we go and we put it directly into people in clinical trials. And this is what you said to me. 80% of the drugs currently fail in human clinical trials. And that number is even higher when it comes to treatments that are being developed for cancer, right? It's 90% then. And what you said to me is, well, that's because the drug selection for clinical trials in people is based on findings from artificially induced diseases in mice. That's exactly right, Cindy. It can be a whole slew of issues why this happened, but one of them is definitely the choice of animal model of jumping from mouse to human. Right. So what's a better model? What's the solution? The solution, Cindy, is to use our own pets with naturally occurring diseases, which, as you said, and we know, are very similar to humans. Our pets with naturally occurring diseases are a far better model than genetically manipulated mice or induced models of mice. In the Anderson Cooper clip, they were talking specifically about cancer. This may be the low-hanging fruit because there are so many kinds of cancers. And it also turns out that many of the cancers that we get as human beings, dogs get in either exactly the same form or something similar. And so cancer is something we're really struggling with. And there's all kinds of funding going into solving this problem. And maybe this is a really good starting point. I mean, what do you think about that? It is absolutely a great starting point. I believe that the perfect storm is here. Pet parents are getting younger and younger and asking for better diagnostics in their pets, which then leads to better treatments. And the technology also that allows us to do that is here, which wasn't here 10 years ago when I was trying to spread the word on on this wonderful model. Mainly what we are trying to avoid is the use of dogs. I'm not saying that, you know, we we need to wipe out everything uh, in the lab animal testing. The preclinical side in rodents still needs to happen. We're trying to avoid the, the pharmacology in dogs. So let's talk specifically about cancer. Um, We're developing some drugs for cancer. We've created mice with cancer. The researcher tests the drugs that he's developed to see which one is better at treating the cancer. And then what you're suggesting is, well, now we skip all that healthy dog monkey stuff. Just take that drug now and put it directly into clinical trials with dogs that have that particular cancer. Right. And get your safety and efficacy data from the pet dogs. Right. So you get information about safety and efficacy from the clinical trials in dogs. You're saying, take that information then and submit it to the FDA for approval to use in clinical trials with people. Exactly. There's literature already in the public domain that has proven this to be effective. Now it needs to be done on a larger scale, so you need to see ultimately if it's really going to work the way that I think it could and, and the impact that it could have. For the reasons that you just mentioned, you know, there's less dogs bred for research. The outcry of the general public to reduce healthy dogs being used in research, and the fact that we have technology now that can help us towards that end 
we need to start applying this concept to our drug development process. So in the literature, it has the potential to help us treat cancer faster and better. I know you keep mentioning these technologies that are available. What technologies do you mean? Communities. Communities of people that have the pets with different cancers to match them with the clinical trials. So those were the communities that I was looking for. Nobody knew anything about communities back then. And today, the technology is all about communities, right? Every time you join a pet app, it's joining this community. You know, if you have questions about diabetes, if you have questions just about, you know, well-being, those are communities. And so now we have that today. The technology you're talking about is just bringing people together. Exactly. This sounds reasonable. I mean, it sounds like we'll get more predictive information from animals that get a naturally occurring disease that is very similar to ours. In fact, many cancers are indistinguishable under the microscope. You can't tell if that cancer came from a dog or a person, right? I mean, that's how similar these diseases are, right? So that makes sense. So I guess the next question is, what else has to be in place for this shift in practice to become a reality? Advocacy and changes in legislation. You know, we have to be realistic. This cannot happen overnight. These legislations have been in place for a long time, and this is the way we do business for a long time. So I understand this is going to take some time, but we have to start that process. We have to start shifting our way of thinking and then influencing the legislation to change accordingly. Getting the FDA to start accepting this information from clinical trials in pet dogs for approval without having to use healthy dogs and monkeys you know, the old way. Skip that. Exactly. What else has to happen to make this become a reality? So what I'm also talking about is the creation of what essentially would be a new career path for veterinarians. We have laboratory animals that basically are doing all the preclinical science. We don't have any training on the clinical side. Why not? You know, particularly if you want to use this naturally occurring animal model in pets, we have to also have then the clinicians trained to do clinical trials in pets. So what you're suggesting is that we have to create some training programs so that we can develop a new kind of veterinarian. Let's call this a clinical research veterinarian, right? Right now, you have lab animal vets who are working strictly with animals in this sort of preclinical setting that we discussed, right? And now what you're suggesting is we need people who can work collaboratively with MDs and other researchers and the clinical research staff and computer scientists and the technical staff and everybody else who's involved in the development of these novel and innovative drug candidates to treat diseases that are common to both dogs and people, right? Absolutely, Cindy. So, I mean, the opportunity here for synergy is clear again, right? Instead of having people work on two different parts of an equation to get a final answer, have them all working together at one time and save time, right? Get to the drug faster. I mean, this is what we talk about on Get Real all the time, right? Stronger science, faster cures, fewer animals. That's what this One Health approach that you've been talking about all these years is really guiding us toward. Improve translatability. All right. So we need to get policy change so that the FDA can approve this information and use that to move into clinical trials. We need to provide training and develop a new kind of veterinarian that is prepared to collaborate with all of these professionals that work currently on clinical trials with people. So they're working together as one. What else do we need? We need to build the infrastructure, the platform, as they call it now, for all these people to come together. Everybody has a part to play within their level of expertise, and then they use the platform to come together and do the work. A digital platform that will allow everybody to put all the information in one place and discuss it. So we have to create some technology that will allow all of these people to work collaboratively, right? And I imagine that that would have to include necessarily the regulators, right? The FDA would have to be in this mix, right? Let's not forget the pet parent. The pet parent is very important in this process also, and they also need to be engaged. And I think we're going to get more buy-in or more contributions from pet parents if they're also part of the process. After all, they're the ones that are asking for the cutting-edge treatment, so they should not be left out. Right. Okay. So that all sounds reasonable to me. And these are necessary steps to put in place to actually create this shift. Who do you think has the responsibility 
to push this thing forward, right? It, it can't just be you. Cindy, it needs to come at the government level. We need perhaps the creation of a task force to look at this cohesively. And then if it's formalized and actually make a committee that works with government and the whole group that is involved in the process to make the drugs. So what you're saying is then in order to really make this happen, someone's got to drive the ship, right? And that has to be the government. They have to say, listen, this is how we're going to do this from now on, right? We're going to move away in as many cases as we can, you know, where we have diseases that are common between humans and people that are naturally occurring, right? We need to move away from this old model and start focusing on this new model. And by doing that, especially in the area of cancer, we're going to get more effective treatments faster than we are now. Exactly right, Cindy. So let's say then that we get all this in place, right? We get the FDA approval. We, you know, we put these training programs in place for veterinarians. We create the digital platforms necessary for all of these people collaborating to work together in evaluating the information between clinical trials with dogs and people. The government's behind it. They're on board. They're going to fund the initiative so we can move forward. How long do you think it'll be before this becomes a regular practice? So I've been studying the landscape for about 10 years now, Cindy, on and off, and I don't see why this process with the technology that we have available today could not be integrated formally within the next five to 10 years and become the new norm for us to do drug development for humans. Certainly for some diseases, and especially cancers, right? I mean, it's not going to replace everything right away. It's going to have to happen in stages, right? So maybe for certain cancers, in five to 10 years, we could move away from the traditional model. And that will reduce the numbers of dogs that we use. Absolutely. You're obviously very passionate about this. You've been wanting it for a long time. Why are you so passionate about removing dogs from you know, the current equation to the best of our ability? So I have a story to tell. When I entered Lab Animal Medicine, there was a veterinarian that was retiring. And he said, you know, after a 20 plus year career, he said, the typical question that he gets asked is like, why are you a Lab Animal Veterinarian? Why Lab Animal? And he said, well, I've been trained to be a Lab Animal Veterinarian. And it's my job and duty to do so until we have a replacement for those animals. That just resonated with me so much and it stayed with me through the years that I'm taking on that task, I guess you could say. And of course, you love dogs. We all love dogs. And there isn't anybody I know who wouldn't prefer that they not be a part of the biomedical research process, right? I mean, anything we can do to reduce the need for dogs in research, you know, we should be doing. And this seems like a reasonable approach to at least get started on that. Thank you for thinking about it, for wanting to talk about it publicly, and for working as hard as you have for over a decade to get someone to listen, you know, and having a formulated plan in place for, okay, well, what else has to happen to make this really move forward? I also uh, want to thank you, and, and I'm going to get a little personal now, but I want to thank you for interviewing with me today. I know it's been a bit difficult for you, physically and emotionally because you yourself struggle with an incurable progressive disease. And so sitting this long and speaking this long has been a challenge for you. And I want to thank you for that. Something else you shared with me is that because of that in particular, this topic has a lot of meaning for you. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. I'm more than happy to discuss that. Um, 15 years ago, I was diagnosed with that condition. And I finally had the opportunity to enter a clinical trial myself, and I'm currently in it and doing it successfully, which is a great value to me because I know what came before this, all the animals that had to be used and all the work that went behind this. Right. And healthy dogs were a part of that, right? I mean, they were part of that pharmacology step that we talked about previously. Exactly right. Pharmacology and toxicology. That's exactly right, Cindy. I value their contribution. I value their sacrifice, literally, that they gave towards this cause that has me today here talking to you, saying that I'm you know, moving forward with a clinical trial. If it wasn't the case of these animals being behind this process, 
who knows where we'll be. I don't even want to think about it. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that, right? I mean, your gratitude for them, and that motivates you even more, I think. Exactly right. Not, not many people understand what came before this, and so I do, and deeply appreciate it, and I'm indebted to these animals. Yeah. Well, we're all indebted to them, um, and in your situation in particular, you know. So uh, before we close, I just want to ask you if you have any final thoughts to share with our listeners. I basically see myself as an advocate for the implementation of clinical trials of pets with naturally occurring diseases to be integrated with the human process of drug development. I think that should be a no-brainer. I know this is going to take time, but we have to start at some point, and I think this is a perfect storm. Pet owners are asking for better treatments and the latest treatments for the pets, and they've done a lot for us, for our well-being and our health, and we owe it to them. I feel like it's my duty, and that's what I will devote my time for this cause. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I think we definitely do owe them a debt of gratitude and to do everything we can to move in this direction to reduce or at some point, maybe, <laughs> maybe even in our lifetimes, wouldn't that be wonderful, eliminate the need for dogs completely in research. Thank you, Dr. Maldonado, for your time today. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Biomedical research with dogs has improved and saved countless human and animal lives and their continued involvement in research will bring more of the same. This is an indisputable fact. We love it, and we hate it. But it may not be up for discussion much longer, because nearly all of the research dogs in the U.S. come from only three Class A breeders. One shut its doors a few months ago, and the other two are drowning in animal rights and legislative assaults. That train's left the station. Will biomedical progress come to a grinding halt when the dogs are gone? Probably not. But the safety of the drugs developed will be more questionable. And we'll just have to accept that risk until we can fully rely on alternative means for screening them. And we're not close to there yet. Up next, what do Mr. Clean and the Department of Defense have in common? <laughs> Find out on the next episode of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real. Thanks for joining us, and remember to visit our episode response page to check out the 60 Minutes clip I mentioned, along with many other resources related to our discussion today. You'll find the link in the lower right-hand corner of our website at getrealpodcast.info. And importantly, at the very top of the page, you'll find our support link. <laughs> if you like what you're hearing on Get Real, then please go there first. A small monthly donation of $5 or $10 from each of you will allow us to keep rolling. We still have so much to talk about, and I appreciate your engagement. We'll talk soon. Bye.